Jesus had one sermon. One sermon. He told it in many ways. He illustrated it with many different types of illustrations, but he taught and he lived one message. We heard it in the gospel reading this morning. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. There are two primary words in Hebrew that are often translated repent. The Greek word is metanoia, which means to change your mind, but it's, the Hebrew is what's beneath it. The first is the word Nahum. You've heard of the prophet Nahum? That's his name, Nahum. Nahum means to be sorry or to be moved to pity or to have your emotions turned over within you. The second word translated repent is shuv. And I remembered this when I was uh, first learning Hebrew because I thought, you know, to push somebody who's going in the wrong way, to shove them, right? Shuv. And shuv means actually to turn around or to turn away. It implies that we're walking in the wrong direction. The essence of Jesus' sermon was and continues to be that humanity is walking in the wrong direction. The revelations of God in the scriptures are in part intended to reveal this truth to us because we seem incapable of knowing it. After all, one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, reminds us of this. All the ways of a person are clean in his own sight, but the Lord examines the motives. All the ways of a person are clean in his own sight, but the Lord examines the motives. The scriptures teach that you and I are not competent to discover the will of God on our own. We're too self-absorbed. We're too self-concerned. We're too wrapped up in our needs and our desires to be objective. We can't set aside our wants. We can't set aside the things we deeply want in order to see or to seek the truth. And this is in part why God chose Abraham and his descendants. God chose to reveal himself to them and through them to all those who put faith in the same God. God revealed himself to them, to us, in order to bring the light of truth into a world that had fallen into darkness. And so Jesus' message was, repent, turn around, change your mind. This is the theme of the gospel of Jesus, and he's restated it even more clearly than that early version of the sermon. He has expanded it in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 25. We find these words in the gospel. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Repent is what he's talking about. Turn around. Change your mind. Rend your heart. You've, you've heard that, right? Rend your heart, not your garments. Another prophet said that. Deny yourself. Now, Jesus filled that message full. We find no fuller version of the call to repent than we do in the life and ministry of Jesus. He filled it as full as it can get. But God had spoken it into the world in rudimentary forms long before Jesus took on flesh. God's call to repentance was first spoken through the prophets of Israel. 
Now, more personally, our roads, your road as a congregation, my road, I've been part of this congregation since August. We've converged during a difficult time in our culture and in our world. A huge number of challenges have converged on us all at once. Most people speak of these things, whether we're talking about natural disasters or the COVID-19 pandemic or the societal upheaval that we are facing in many places in our country and in our world, even now war in Eastern Europe. People speak of those things as quite natural parts of living on earth, of just consequences of human choices, of things that we've decided to do or have failed to decide to do. And these things, this just happens. And I'm sure that's true. They are consequences, without a doubt. But I'm also convinced that what we are experiencing now is what the prophets of Israel called the judgment of God. Now, I don't say that to scare anybody, though the truth can be scary. That's not the point. I confess that to orient us. To know how to go where you want to go, you have to know where you're starting. My Google Maps won't even work unless they can have my location first. You have to know where you stand if you're going to decide if you're walking in the right direction or if you even want to decide where you are supposed to be going to begin with. To know how to move forward, it's always important to know where we're beginning. So the first question of any Christian is, what time is it? One of my favorite words is the word katawampo. Do you know the word? I didn't know it either, but when I saw it, I thought, that's me. That's my life. I love that word. New favorite word, katawampo. Katawampo means to travel purposefully toward an as-yet-unknown destination. It's to wander and, and purposefully wander. That, that seems to be my life. Abraham katawampled to Canaan because God didn't tell him where he was going. He just said, leave your father's house and leave your home and go to the land I'll show you. So he deliberately left not knowing where he was going, right? He just headed west. He katawampled into the land that God would show him. But we can't katawample church into the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. To enter the kingdom of God, we have to follow Jesus. He's the only one who knows the way. And Jesus seemed insistent throughout his ministry that in order to follow him, we have to first be honest about where we stand when we meet him. And we might need to be honest about where we stood when we first met him. But Jesus encounters us many times over the course of our walk with him. As natural as some of what's happening to us may seem, the ancient Egyptians learned long ago in the events of the Exodus that events can be both natural and supernatural at the same time. They can be both consequences and judgments simultaneously. It's not a choice of either or. Similarly, what's happening to us, in my estimation, are both consequences and judgments. And I suspect God's word to us here as we sit in 2022 is the same as the words he spoke to his culture. It's the only sermon he seemed to know how to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The world is headed in the wrong direction. You have time to course correct by the grace of God. But if that's true, well, then what would the right direction be? How exactly have we gone wrong? And how might we go right? That's the question, right? 
And you and I are not competent to discover that on our own. Remember our proverb, all the ways of a person are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. To know the right direction, we need the teachings of God's prophets and apostles with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And as I was seeking the Lord over what book to begin with, I'm a preach through a book kind of preacher. I felt the Lord put his finger on the book of Amos. And it's very much sad to me that I felt that before I read Amos. I mean, I had read Amos before, but it had been a while. And I thought, okay, we'll do a series through Amos. And then I sat down and read the first chapter. And my wife can testify to this. My, my response was, oh boy, Amos. Some of what we'll read in Amos is distressing. Because of its ancient, ancientness, some of it is confusing. And thankfully, some of it is comforting, as prophecies always are. But the purpose of prophecy is really not to be found in your or my emotional response or our intellectual response. That's not the purpose of prophecy, isn't to necessarily evoke an emotion. The purpose of prophecy is to reveal God to us. God's instructions, God's values, God's decisions, God's character. So throughout the series, whether we're in a distressing passage, today's is kind of distressing. Do you see I'm kind of hedging my bets? Can you tell what I'm doing up here? I got a shield, so this is great, because I've never been able to avoid uh, rocks like this before. But today's is a little distressing, but whether we're in a distressing passage or a confusing passage or an encouraging passage, and they do exist in Amos, my primary concern will be, what does the passage tell us about God? Now, I encourage you to bring Bibles just because of the way that I preach. I'm all over. I've tried to put slides together so that you'll have some of these on the screen, but you won't have the first one. I'm going to read uh, the opening chapter of the book of Amos. And Mary, you owe me a great thanks because I did not make you read this. <laughs> I thought, we need Jesus. We need Jesus when our liturgist reads. But uh, it's, 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 it's distressing. We'll let this be in my mouth. So if anybody gets stones, it will be me. So I'm going to read Amos chapter 1, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. We'll keep doing our liturgical readings from the NIV, that's fine. But when I preach, I like to preach from this Bible. It's very literal, and I like the new version. So if you don't have a Bible, you're going to get one. Maybe that's the one. Amos chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the words of the prophet. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he saw in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. God always sends his prophets in advance. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. This is what the Lord says, For three offenses of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus, and eliminate every inhabitant from the valley of Aven, as well as him who holds the from Betiden. So the people of Aram will be exiled to Kir, says the Lord. 
This is what the Lord says, for three offenses of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they led into exile an entire population to turn them over to Edom. So I will send fire on the wall of Gaza and it will consume her citadels. I will also eliminate every inhabitant from Ashdod as well as him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will direct my power against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. This is what the Lord says, for three offenses of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they turned an entire population over to Edom and did not remember the covenant of blood brotherhood. So I will send fire on the wall of Tyre and it will consume her citadels. This is what the Lord says, for three offenses of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire upon Timon and it will consume the citadels of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says, for three offenses of the sons of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah and it will consume her citadels amid war cries on the day of battle and amid a storm on the day of tempest. Their king will go into exile. He and his princes together, says the Lord. This is the last one. This is what the Lord says, for three offenses of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So I will send fire upon Moab and it will consume the citadels of Kiriot and Moab will die amid the panic of battle, amid war cries and the sound of a trumpet. I'll also eliminate the judge from her midst and slay all her leaders with him, says the Lord. You see why I said, oh my. Usually I say this is the word of God for the people of God. We say thanks be to God, but maybe not for that one, huh? In the days of Amos, there were professional prophets who were trained to prophesy. The book begins by telling us Amos was never instructed in that way. Amos was a simple shepherd from a town named Tekoa, which was near Bethlehem between Bethlehem and Hebron, but near Bethlehem. And quite to Amos's surprise, one day, the Lord spoke to him and sent him as a prophet to northern Israel, far from home. What does this tell us about God? God doesn't always choose trained professionals or ordained priests or recognized prophets to declare his word. At least on this occasion, God delivered his word to a humble shepherd. Reminds me of the story of Jesus, when God appeared to the shepherds just outside the same city of Bethlehem and told them about his birth. Sounds similar to Amos. And the first set of oracles or prophecies that the Lord gave to Amos to deliver were not about Israel at all. They were about Israel's neighbors. All of these countries surrounded Israel. They were her near neighbors. If it was written to America, we'd be talking about Canada and Mexico. If we're talking about Mexico, we'd be talking about America and the countries of the Middle East, I mean, of the Central America. So that's who he's talking about. He was given words for Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. What does this tell us about God? Well, God's not concerned only with Israel or only with Christians. God is the God and judge of all the earth, and all nations will answer to him for the way that they've behaved on the earth. In fact, this is what Christians are meant to say when we say Jesus is Lord. We do not mean that Jesus is simply Lord of Israel or Lord of the church or Lord of Christian hearts, but that he is Lord of heaven and earth. 
So Amos's ministry began by proclaiming God's evaluation of the behavior of each of the nations that surrounded Israel. Our passage next week will discuss God's thoughts about Israel and Judah, the nation of Israel. But in this week's passage, he's evaluating Israel's neighbors. How did they do? What did God think of them? <laughs> they didn't do well, right? He didn't think much of them, it seems. Why? Well, he tells us his reasons, but maybe some of them are confusing. He spelled out specific accusations. He condemned Damascus for threshing Gilead with iron sledges. He condemned Gaza for kidnapping people and selling them into slavery. He condemned Tyre for profiting from the slave trade. He condemned Edom for serving as the middle person in the slave trade, for its envy of Israel, and for its refusal to forgive past offenses by carrying a thirst for vengeance perpetually. He condemned Ammon for tearing open pregnant women in order to extend its borders, and he condemned Moab for burning the bones of a rival king to ash. Seems all, some of that seems like, yeah, and some of it goes, what? Some of these accusations are confusing because these cultures are so far removed from ours. I mean, I wouldn't recommend burning a king's bones to ash if you had that in your heart to do, but I'm not quite sure that in my estimation it would de deserve the destruction of the nation in which it happened. But I'll try to contextualize them. First, God's condemnations both of Damascus and of Ammon were very similar. When God accused Damascus of threshing Gilead with iron sledges, he was accusing them of a shamelessly brutal conquest. The way a farmer tills soil that's the way that this place was left. Gilead was left totally upturned. Some are accusing Russia of doing the same to Ukraine now. We might say that they are being plowed with iron sledges. Similarly, when God condemned Ammon for tearing open pregnant women to enlarge its territory, he's also accusing them of an excessively brutal conquest for the purpose of territory expansion. And that phrase of tearing open women, as brutal as it is, was common in the ancient Near East for the worst of conquests, and that's what he means. Secondly, God condemned Gaza and Tyre for engaging in the kidnapping and selling of slaves. That was against the law. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says, Now one who kidnaps someone, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall certainly be put to death. Now, some might say, wait, didn't the Israelites have slaves? Slavery was legal in Israel, but slavery in Israel among Israelites was voluntary, usually happened because of debts. It was temporary. All slaves were released when they paid their debt or every 50th year in the year of Jubilee. And it never implied lesser human value. All Israelite slaves were kept together as families and they fully participated in the life of Israel and in the temple. I'm not defending it, but it was not what God is condemning here. Now, neither Gaza nor Tyre had agreed to abide by the covenant of Sinai. And yet God apparently expected both nations to know the wickedness of kidnapping and selling people as though they were commodities. Thirdly, God condemned Edom essentially for carrying a generational grudge. Edom was the nation founded by Jacob's brother Esau. And some of you know the story of Jacob and Esau. I don't know if you've had kids who were rivals, but they really took the cake, right? They really hated each other. Jacob, who is later named Israel, Esau, who is nicknamed Edom because it means red and he had red hair, it seems, didn't like each other because Jacob stole Esau's birthright and blessing, and Esau responded by swearing to kill him. It was a wonderful family. 
They reconciled by the end of their lives, but their children fought ever afterward. And God's condemnation of Edom was that they carried their hatred of Israel throughout their generations, passing it down from families to children like a type of racism that is just fed into the next generation over time. And that led to constant wars between Edom and Israel throughout their histories. And finally, God's condemnation of Moab was similar to that of Edom. The people of Moab had dug up the bones of one of Edom's kings and burned them to ash. Now, in the religious worldview of the ancient Near East, that's how you make sure someone can never be raised from the dead. That's how you make sure they don't go into the afterlife. And so they were trying to make sure that that king would be dead forever. That was what they were trying to do. God didn't care for that act of vindictiveness. What does all that tell us about God? Of course, Amos's prophecies reveal to us the kinds of behaviors that have led God to destroy nations in the past. I'll do this quickly, but let's consider them more closely. To begin, kidnapping people as slaves, selling them into slavery, and benefiting from the slave trades were behaviors God deemed worthy of condemnation. According to Amos, any nation that engages in these things knows what to expect from God when he decides to act, and sometimes his actions are delayed by tens or hundreds of years. Western cultures have learned and are still learning this because we engaged in this our cultures did. Activities that God destroyed these other nations for doing. Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address confessed to suspecting that the Civil War was in part God's judgment on America for the sin of slavery. Some of you may remember this quotation. It's from his second inaugural address. Lincoln said, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, and this is the heart of it, until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's from Abraham Lincoln. Just a few, of a, a, a couple months before he was killed, Contemporary events continue to reveal that we as a culture have not fully repented of these heinous crimes as we continue as a culture to fail to treat all people equally and as worthy of equal honor and respect. We talked about that in the fall with Reverend Sunga in our Imagine No Racism series. Additionally, even today, human trafficking continues throughout the world and it's been exposed more and more in recent days. We know how God evaluated Gaza and Tyre. How do you think he will evaluate the nations of the world today? Continuing on, brutalizing our enemies, carrying generational grudges, envying what others have, and resorting to violence or wickedness to get it for ourselves, and attempting to ensure that our enemies are exempted from all mercy are all behaviors that God condemned in these nations surrounding Israel. Those who behave in these ways do not know God, they invite his judgment upon them. In fact, Jesus himself denounced these kinds of behaviors that Amos condemned. 
when he taught the following. This is in Matthew 5, 38 to 48. This is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, an eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect, filled full, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And many of us who are Christians, we hold fast to the promise of Jesus in John chapter 3, that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that, of course, is true. Through Jesus, if we receive his teaching through faith in him and through trust in his way, we have been given the gift of salvation. But to trust Jesus is to accept his call to repent, to turn from whatever God calls wickedness and to turn toward whatever God calls righteousness. Jesus did not come to condemn us. That's not why he came. He came to warn us. He came to save us. He came to call us to repentance, to reveal to us our darkness that we might know the light of God before the judgment comes. That's why he came. He came to die in place of all of those who receive his call and to reconcile us to God, to make peace with us in his blood. And he came to rise from the dead ahead of us that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and that those who put faith in him might join him in the kingdom of God realized. But all of that does not mean that God is never judging the nations of the earth again, that after Jesus came, everybody can do whatever they want and everybody gets a free pass. It's not the way it works. Well, you're living in this world, can you tell? In fact, the New Testament says as much. The Apostle Paul exhorted us in his epistle to the Galatians. This is in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. So then while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And of course, the New Testament book of Revelation has preserved forever God's intention to judge the wickedness of the nations of the earth in his time. I said at the beginning of our time together, and I say this now in conclusion, that I believe we are currently experiencing the judgment of God. But that is conjecture. You may not agree with me, and you're free not to. I don't have any authority. I only start conversations. I can't finish them. But if I'm right, how might we test that? How might we know if we are being judged? Well, the answer to that is both complicated and straightforward. It's complicated because none of us can confidently say what God is doing. Only God can speak for himself. 
but it is simple because we have a collection of books that reveal the kinds of judgments God has sent upon nations and people throughout history, and they include God's reasons for doing so. And I can say for certain that the kinds of challenges that we've been facing as a culture are consistent with the things that happened to nations in Scripture when they were facing the judgment of God. They're consistent with those things. Even more, it seems to me that the nations of the earth in our day have continued, do you agree with this? They've continued to participate in the behaviors that God condemned in, through Amos in the verses we've been considering today. It's not as though the world is pure. And some of you, if you have been part of a marginalized group, you know exactly how crooked this generation is because you felt it. Many are feeling it today in Europe, a, a new, and many have in the Middle East. Amos's early prophecies against Israel's neighbors don't provide an exhaustive list of all the things that God has problems with. But even if we just took what Amos said in isolation from everything else, how do you think we would do? I think we'd be found guilty. Others may say, no, no, there's still time. It's not as bad as it was. Some may say that, and you may be right. But for those convinced the answer is that we are guilty, as I am, how might we respond? How is the church, how are the people of God who have been awakened in this generation who can see, how do we respond? We can't repent for anybody else. That doesn't work. And we can't accept responsibility for changing the behavior of every person or institution in our culture. To do that, we would have to have become tyrants ourselves. And you can't overcome evil with the very evil you wish to overcome. Even so, each of us in the limited scope of our lives can repent. We can refuse to participate in or benefit from any activity or behavior that treats people as things to be used or that seizes an innocent person's freedom from them. Even more, we can speak up and care for those who are treated this way whenever we have opportunity. Further, each of us can refuse to hold generational grudges we can refuse to keep a record of wrongs. I read that somewhere, that love doesn't keep those. We can leave vengeance to God. We can refuse to focus on what others have, and we can be content with what the Lord has provided us, and we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. These are things each of us can do. And if each person who claimed Jesus as Lord repented in these ways, the cultures in which we live would be fundamentally changed in the same way that a small amount of yeast leavens an entire loaf of bread. Each of you could be the difference. May each of us hear the warning of God through Amos today, and may we receive the sermon of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near.